You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to our podcast where I have the incredible pleasure to introduce Dr. David Frawley, the author of his new book, The Art and Science of Vedic Counseling. We'll post this book on our website. You can see it. Um, I am super excited about this interview. Uh, I have a passion for Ayurvedic psychology, and we are all about to talk to the expert in this field. Let me give you a, a quick and brief uh, intro to Dr. David Frawley, Doctor of Lit, is the author of nearly 50 books on related Vedic knowledge and Vedic teachings of Ayurveda, Yoga, Vedanta, Vedic astrology, have been published in more than 20 languages over the past several decades. His most recent title, Art and Science of Vedic Counseling, shows us how to integrate these related disciplines into a comprehensive life guidance approach. Dr. Frawley is the first Western Vedic teacher to receive the prestigious Padma Bhushan Award, which is the third highest civilian award from the President of India for his pioneering work in Vedic education. He is the director of the American Institute of Vedic Studies in Santa Fe, New Mexico, along with his wife, Yogini, Shambhavi, Devi, which offer the online courses and regular retreats and training programs in various countries. Uh, he sees Vedic knowledge as a vast resource to help us to connect to our deeper selves and universal consciousness that is the key to both healing us personally and for world peace. I've known Dr. David for many, many years, 20, pushing 30 years maybe, I'm not sure. And uh, there is no more uh, brilliant mind in the world of Ayurveda and Vedic sciences and Vedic studies than Dr. David Frawley. So if you don't know who he is, um, you need to. He's an amazing resource. He's written over 50 books on Ayurveda and Vedic science and Jyotish and, and just a wealth of information. So please uh, welcome him. I am super excited to have this interview and I just can't wait to talk about this topic of Vedic psychology. Vedic psychology is something that's maybe the most important piece of of interaction between a doctor and a patient because at the end of the day we all know that it's our crazy mind that makes that takes our body out and it's patterns of behaviors and belief systems make us do the same dumb thing again and again and again in our lives right and how do we break those old patterns you know one study showed that we're that 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 95% of the things we think and say and do are 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 created in the first 5 or 6 years of life and they're called unconscious behaviors that we do. Most of the stuff we do is unconscious. And what Dr. Frawley is going to do for us today is, I think, going to teach us and show us how to become conscious. And that is what Veda is about. So we are going to talk about talk to the expert about this. And, and David, welcome. Thank you for, for making the time and your busy schedule to, to, to join me and have this interview. Uh, thank you very, very much for being here. 
Namaste. It's a great honor to be with you and to see you again after such a very long period of time. I'm also a great fan of your work in many areas and have been watching how it expands uh, throughout the country and throughout the globe over the past few years. So I'm always very happy to be with you and it is uh, a very great day for me also. So I want to just dive right in because I just have so much to talk to you about and it's I'm so I feel so honored to do this. Okay, so um, this conscious this idea that 95% of the things we think and say and do as an adult come from unconscious behaviors as a child. Can you can you talk to me about that from a Vedic perspective and and what are some of the strategies we can do as adults to unravel that? Yes, yes. Well, there are a number of factors involved. First of all, most of what we do is, of course, upon karma. And these karmic forces are set in motion not only earlier in this life, but also in uh, previous lives. Uh, secondly, as uh, embodied creatures, uh, we have a great deal of biological, psychological, and sociological imperatives going on within our lives from the basic ground of food, survival, uh, to social expansion, and so forth. So a lot of our lives are programmed, and a lot of what we are doing is essentially repeating subconscious or unconscious patterns. And actually what the Vedic thought teaches us is that what we call the mind is not a conscious intelligence, but a programmed entity, or you might say, a subconscious reaction system. <clears throat> and we could say more specifically that 99% of what our minds do is useless or of no real purpose, and a significant portion of that can be harmful, and that if we are not in control of our awareness, we are usually breeding some sort of psychological pathology, fear, anger, desire, attachment, grief, uh, so many things. So one of the most important facts of our lives is confronting the fact that our minds are covered in a basic state of ignorance or not knowing or compulsion or conditioning that will go on mechanically unless we challenge it, unless we are willing to make changes in how we live. And as you said, a lot of these things start in childhood, they're also through the educational uh, system, so that by the time we are in a position to become aware of them, they have already been deeply set in motion and have many ruts in the road that they easily fall into. So we need first an awakening of intelligence and consciousness that recognizes that unless we are in conscious control of our lives, other forces will rule us and those other forces will rule us to their advantage or keeping us in a state in which our deeper potential uh, does not come forth, whether these are biological forces, whether these are forces of advertising, uh, whether these are various social compulsions. We need to be willing to awaken and take control of our lives, and that is what Vedic teachers, Vedic counselors, True yoga teachers help us do, create a conscious awareness, a conscious lifestyle, not because simply we have compulsions from the past, but also because we have great cosmic potentials within us that are not going to unfold 
unless we give them a field in which they can grow, blossom, and flower. So our lives are a movement from darkness to light. But even though that darkness can be very deep or very difficult to work with in some ways, there is an equal and more powerful light that we can connect to if we learn how to break down these attachments, conditionings, and understand the deeper awareness within us, which is on the other side of what we call the mind. So before we go into how to do that, I want to, you glossed over a couple of things there. I'm going to pull you back for a second. One is these impressions that we know is behavioral patterns of childhood and impressions and marketing and all that. But also, there's a lot of science now that's talking, kind of supporting this idea of some scars, a Vedic concept that, that we take impressions from past lives into this life. We have good science that shows that, that impressions from our grandparents and great parents are actually passed on. They took rabbits and they, man, when they smelled pepper and oil, they would, they would uh, poke them with a poker and they would get very, very afraid of pepper and oil. And then when the rabbit had babies and the babies grew up and they were, they were also afraid of pepper and oil and their babies were afraid of pepper and oil. So we, we, and that was proven not only with rabbits, but with, with, uh, with people who grew up in the Holocaust and some famines in, 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 uh, in uh, Norway, I believe it was, showed that, that these impressions and these traumas are carried three generations in our lives, which is sort of, you know, the best science can do for these some scars. And I'd love for you to talk about how those impressions are carried into our life and, and also how, you know, even the, the, the some scars from a past life perspective are, are dealt with. I mean, yeah. this is not even fair, right? We come in and, and like we didn't, it's not even our thing. We're dealing with other people's, you know, issues. How do we deal with that? Well, first of all, you know, we, we do exist together. Karma is also something that is collective. Life is interdependent. On one level, we have to accept responsibility for ourselves. There are no victims, we could say. At another level, we have to accept some degree of responsibility for others uh, also. The physical body itself has a lot of unconsciousness in it, a lot of which is necessary for its functioning. But then it moves over into taking these patterns of hunger and thirst and desire and fear and projecting them into psychological realms, social patterns as well. Now, we do have certain genetic conditioning. Uh, we also have a certain shared awareness or mentality or collective mind with our family and our society, which is also, of course, reinforced through education. But besides this genetic pattern, we also have our own karmic or samskaric pattern at an individual level. Now, that is related to the karma of people around us, but it is also unique to ourselves and carries on <clears throat> certain tendencies, many of them we do not know, uh, some very high, some very low, so that essentially we're living half asleep and we're not aware of who we are, and our society does not give us the tools to wake up. We're living in the dream of our samskaras. We're living in the dream of our individual and collective karma. And we only have a clear awareness at certain times of the day. Otherwise, we fall into daydreaming, compulsion, uh, habit, uh, reactive type 
behavior. So we have this web of samskaras that we need to deal with. But to do that in the proper way, we have to cultivate a moment-by-moment awareness. And that is very difficult, particularly in our media age of uh, instant stimulation, instant uh, ratification. So it's very important for us to understand this web of karma, what it is, its depth, but also the tools we can have to go beyond it. And a very simple rule, if you can just be aware, observe, and witness what you are doing, that will always give you an option or a possibility for positive change and transformation. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to talk about self-awareness and how to actually do that. Except I want to take you back one more time and talk a little bit about karma. You know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about karma. And, you know, we think about karmas from the past and karmas that from even from our childhood, you know, and there's good karma and bad karma. We know that the word karma is action. And I have this belief, and, I, and I'd love for you to, to tell me if this is accurate or not, that karma is action. It's an old saying that says to the, that, that to the extent that... Um, that uh, someone affects you or something affects you is to the extent that it is your karma, your opportunity for a transformational action step. So I look at it as there is no good or bad karma. There's opportunity for you to take action to free yourself from old patterns of unconscious behavior and be free. And a lot of people are just like, oh, something bad happens, it's your karma. And like now we're like, ah, that was like, like, I did something bad, I didn't even know I did it, and now I'm paying another price for it. And, and, and I think what you said was so beautiful. There's, there's these, for every action, there's a reaction, and this karmic thing is real, but it's, there's so much good and bad that happens that can you really titrate out bad karma versus good karma, or is it really just the opportunity for action? Well, basically, karma means that we are free to create our own destiny. And life. Great. It's not a fact of compulsion, but there are certain laws that go along with it. We are free to create our own destiny in life, but we do so within the field of time. Not everything has an immediate effect. And this is where we get caught in the inertia of past karma or past life karma, because the ego of the present life is not the same as the ego of the previous life that set that karmic force in motion. But the soul is one. So we have to accept that our actions are occurring in time, and we have to look at the long-term consequences of our action, as well as accepting the fact that certain things that are happening to us are happening to us because of forces we set in motion in the past. Uh, Secondly, we're free to act, but only in the field of natural law. You're free to put your hand into a fire or not, but you're not free to put your hand in a fire and not get burnt. <laughs> and the problem is the effects of actions all don't manifest immediately either. You eat bad food over a long period of time. You take too many spices, all the pitta increasing. Then your pitta goes off a few years down the road. You don't see the connection between the cause and effect. So we have to see the factor of natural law. And I also mentioned earlier, there's the collective factor of karma. But we must assume karmic responsibility for our lives. And that means we accept the fact that we are creating our own destiny through our own action. 
and that we are working with other people. But I have a certain rule here. Two-thirds of what we do, we are responsible for. Only one-third can we blame other people for, so that the burden of responsibility is always ours. And once we recognize then that, then we have the freedom to change our lives and move them in a positive direction. Karmic understanding, karmic responsibility, karmic management, then we can learn to transcend karma through moment-by-moment awareness and through attuning ourselves with the benefic forces of life, which are the dominant forces throughout all of nature. So what you're saying is that there's this huge collective consciousness that is also part of our karma. And at the end of the day, it boils down to the actions that you take. I, I love in the Bhagavad Gita in verse 2, chapter 48, when Arjuna says to Krishna, Yoga Kuru Kamani, which means first establish being and then perform action. And I really feel like we are in our culture with yoga, breathing, meditation being such a popular, maybe not quite as popular as it could be, but, but is very popular. It's all about established being and become still. But very yes. few people talk about the take action part. And yes. the take action part is when you make a transformational change, where you become conscious and get rid of unconscious behaviors. And if you don't take action based on the science, nothing happens. So this is my very strong belief. And I, I'd love for you to help me. First, let me know if, that, if you think that's accurate. And then how do we take action based on that science? How do we perform action based on the being? Yes. Well, first of all, mainly we're caught up in reaction. Somebody pushes our buttons. We have our conditioning. We have our desires. We are reacting. We are not acting. Right. So when you're reacting, you're being, you're being pushed by some force from the outside to respond in a mechanical manner. And as soon as you react, as soon as you defend yourself, you've already lost. So we have to learn that that reactivity doesn't help us. And of course, today we're taught socially, politically, in many ways to be reactive. But we have to, first of all, to act, we have to learn how to respond rather than to react. And you can only respond when you first of all observe and see what is going on. And to do that, you have to take a balanced or detached state of awareness where you look at what's actually happening apart from either your own or your society's vested interest and try to understand the truth of things. So we need that stillness and observation within to truly act. And then that action becomes karma yoga. It's action that is done for the good of all and action that's done to connect us to the greater consciousness and reality or action that is an offering rather than a uh, seeking of achievement. And in this process, we learn that action is occurring through universal forces, not through our personal ego. The more personal effort we make in life, usually the more problems we create. The more we think about things, usually the worse things get. So when we learn to surrender and let go to that awareness, then we discover that there is a higher universal power of action and right way of doing things. Uh, if you learn to work with your food and your plants and you see their qualities, 
You know what is a good quality plant to take. No one needs to tell you because you have the ability to observe and to feel. So what we need to do is take back our own direct experience of our lives, which means also to be able to experience our basic patterns of sleep, action, eating, drinking, relationship, going outdoors in nature. Today, people are not living their lives. Uh, they're caught in proxy. They're caught in entertainment, stimulation, little boxes, and uh, so forth, so that action arises from the point of stillness, as you say, and being is the highest state of transformation. If we can touch that place of stillness within, then that will allow all the forces of transformation to come forth like the moving of a wheel around a central axis. So you hit the main point. We do our action from a state of yoga or balance, and then the action follows the universal flow rather than our personal will, and it has the ability to integrate and to heal rather than to try to dominate or control. So you said being is the most powerful form of action. Transformation. Transformation. So are you saying that that you could truly meditate your karma away without an actual action in this realm, laying down new neural pavement in your brain? You can do it just from that state of being? Well, first of all, being has no karma. Karma belongs to the body and the mind. And the mind and body are built up of karmic patterns. But deep within us, we have a core of awareness in the present, in the presence of being. So that is not limited by time. So when we can move into that, then we can create that clear space that sort of then allows the, you know, that you could say karma is like a turbulent lake. Uh, when we get into that clear space, we allow that to drain or to flow away or the stream to uh, move on. So that inner stillness is beyond karma and can transform karma, but we can only move into it slowly and bit by bit at different levels. Asana is there to bring stillness to heal the body, pranayama to balance the breath, to heal the prana, and so forth into the deeper senses and mind. Yoga is about that stillness or balance, which is not an artificial state. It is that inner state of connection, uh, relaxation, and being open to the presence and the beauty of life. So this is, this is difficult because uh, there was a study that was done where they actually measured two types of giving. One was giving hedonistically, which meant that you gave and you hoped that they liked the gift that you gave them. It wasn't like some bad thing. It was like, I'm attached to the outcome that I make you happy. And the other one was given was called eudaimonically. Eudaimonically means that you give, but you have no concern about the outcome. I love you, honey, but it's no concern of yours, kind of a thing. And when they gave eudaimonically with no attachment, it actually had an effect on changing and transforming the DNA. It actually had an impact on the genetic level. But when they gave hedonistically, even if it was just a little like, I hope you love it, it didn't penetrate to that level. So we're talking about 
real levels of refinement in terms of giving. I think we, we all know, listening to this, that giving is an oxytocin-based, longevity-based experience versus taking is a dopamine reward-based chemistry, which is part of the attachment you've talked about. But how do people get to the place where they can actually give? I mean, the sun shines light on the earth, doesn't really care. Because it shines light on the moon, nothing happens on the moon. The sun doesn't care if you chop its trees down or kill its cattle or if the flower blossoms. It doesn't care at all. But we have a hard time not caring and being attached to the outcome. What are some strategies to unravel that, if that's what we should unravel? Well, I think, again, we have to go back to a place of self-understanding, understanding each other, and being present and aware and sharing the movement and the wonder of life. And we also have to be careful. Don't be too clever in the mind. Don't try to do uh, too many things. And don't try to unravel too many things. Be willing to let things go. If there's a certain negative pattern inside of you, it's because you're holding on to it at some level. So the question is, why don't you let it go? See? Uh, and this is where the Vedic system is very practical because, you know, we live on many levels and there's many layers of our being. So going back to the most basic biological level, being aware of our food, our beverages, our exercise, our patterns of waking and sleep and exercise, and make sure that we are connected to not the universe as a kind of uh, uh, outer thing, but as a presence of being within and around us. And then the magic of life will begin to unfold and things will begin to teach us or speak to us and our life will have uh, more meaning. And then we realize it's that we don't own anything. We don't even own our own bodies. You know, we can't uh, prevent them from undergoing their cycles of growth and maturity and decay and death. But we are all part of a common awareness and being that we can share. And once we do that, then we open up a new dimension of experience for all of us. If we're all taking, we're all fighting. If we're all giving, uh, there's all abundance. Now, we at the same time need to be practical, understand who we are and what we need, and also understand the notorious and difficult nature of the world uh, in which we live on many levels. Uh, but there are many simple things that we can do. And then we start to build and grow this process of moment-by-moment -moment awareness, right living, right relationship, right diet. There's so many ways it can be approached through Ayurveda and yoga and related healing systems. Okay, so you said let it go. We have to the, we have to get to the place where in the mind we can you know not react and just let it all go. But there's and I get that. And I think consciously, I think a lot of us can go, yeah, I don't have to fight that battle. I don't have to fight that battle. I can just let it go. But there's a lot of new science that suggests that we're not the only ones making these decisions. That we have you know 
epigenetic factors that what we think we become, what we see we become, when we eat our food angry, we impregnate emotions onto those foods, the little microbes which make up 90% of us, trillions of them, they are they are very vulnerable, according to the science, to stress, and they hold on to these emotional patterns. And when we eat them, which because they're on the food that we eat, they become our our microbiome, and they send messages, emotional messages, to our brain to tell us the world's pretty crazy out there. We've been watching Donald Trump on TV, and and my microbes are crazy right now, and I'm eating foods that are impregnated with these microbes, emotionally charged, that are in my gut, telling my brain there's a war on If I watch CNN and there's wars and disasters. So we're now being, and I guess that's what, what you know, these, you saw, you talk about, you know, these global, you know, karmas that are coming in. But that's another piece of the puzzle, that the, this mind is, is, is making decisions based on the foods we eat and, and and I, and I guess what I'm asking you is about a sattvic lifestyle, but I'm also asking you, how do we do that? How do people in regular life pull that off? Well, as you say, you see, we have all these uh, compulsions and energies and conditionings that have been inbred within us and that are around us. We also have positive healing energies that are going on. And the breath and the food and deep sleep and herbs, there's so many things that we can access. So we have to gradually move the scale and become more aware and understanding. Is that a two-third, one-third thing like, like before? <laughs> we, 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 have, we have to recognize that we have the power to change who we are. Yeah. If we change our lifestyle and if we change the habitual things of our life. If we are conscious of our food and our eating, we're also uh, bringing the healing power of consciousness into that. Then we need a good system of knowledge, and this is where the Vedic system helps us a lot. Ayurveda teaches us the proper qualities of food, herbs, how to combine them, how to eat them, how they relate to our individual constitution physically and uh, psychologically. That knowledge is also essential so that that awareness can have a tool to apply itself at the different levels of our being. And modern science has given us some tools to show how things affect us at a subtle level. But what we must understand is that that subtlest energy is ourselves and the power of our own awareness. And one thing we must remember is that we need a good power of attention concentration and focus in order to change our lives and that's where it's good to be in touch with a good counselor or teacher or healer who can reinforce that inner voice and that inner knowledge and that inner pattern otherwise it's easy to get lost in this ocean of influences around us and it's also easy to fall into negativity and uh, depression but we must understand that what allows us to heal and transform is, first of all, the ability not to be taken down by anything. The ability that we always cultivate that sense of the greater purpose, a value, good, and truth. So the way of knowledge and connecting to the teachers helps us do that. But it is a very daunting thing for us today. And that's why we need to create alliances, friendship, family, 
and community because the weight of social influence is always difficult to overcome, but it can be done. And now this knowledge is coming to us in a number of forms uh, through all the Vedic teachings, Buddhist teachings, so many ways that can help us and that if we dedicate ourselves to this type of lifestyle, not going to change overnight, but in a month, a year, several years, the magic can occur. So you're, I want you to talk to me a little bit about a, what we're talking about is a sattvic way of life, which is a, a giving, loving, oxytocin way of life. And that's difficult in this culture. And most of us as young children figure out that ice cream and toys and boyfriends and girlfriends are better, more stimulating, more what we call rajasic, right? And then after a lifetime of overstimulation, we check out and we retreat and we become more tamasic. So we have many of us that are living aspects of our life in a tamasic, sort of protective, retreated world. Many of us living in, most of us living in some form of stimulation, rajasic world. And the Vedic goal, which is where all, it's really cool, right? All the microbes thrive and multiply in a positive way in a sattvic environment. This is so cool about Ayurveda. They knew, they didn't know about bugs, I don't think, and I'd love you to answer that question too, that they know about little microbes. But they also, they knew that, that putting oil on your skin and loving and giving and caring and living a sattvic life is exactly what the microbes thrive on. And rajasic and tamasic behavior is exactly what takes out our good microbes, which make up 90% of us and do the heavy lifting for everything. So, so I'd love to hear you talk about Sattva, Rajas, Thomas, how do we navigate all that? And did they know about bugs way back when? Well, they knew of subtle energies, okay. pranic forces, uh, powers of nature, and subtle energies, uh, subtle emotional forces, so that they knew. Whether they regarded them as microbes in the way we do, uh, that's another thing. They also recognized seven levels of the universe of which our physical world is only the gross outer seventh factor and that the inner factors are uh, more important. Now, the important thing to understand today is we're in a stimulation-based society, which, as you say, is Rajasar. But actually, what is we having an epidemic of depression today throughout the society. What is the cause of depression is stimulation. The, it's very simple because the more you rely on stimulation on the outside, the more you get uh, depressed or limited uh, inwardly. And over time, you need stronger and stronger stimulation to receive the same result until eventually you burn out on stimulation altogether. So that rajas is very intoxicating at a certain moment, but its long-term effect is to dull us and deplete us or to take us back to a state of uh, tamas. And here we must learn to be more discriminating and more aware. For example, there is a tremendous beauty in nature. There is a tremendous enjoyment in using your senses in a contemplative manner, rather than just simply watching, you know, very loud and uh, noisy forms of entertainment. Not that all entertainment is necessarily... Uh, bad, it can have its uh, purpose, but using, learning the right use of the senses so the senses feel uh, renewed. For example, people today have lost a lot of sensory acuity. You take them out into nature and they aren't sensitive to the subtle 
colors, the earth tones, the lichen on the rocks, the different patterns of the leaves. Because of that stimulation uh, based, and we've done the same thing with our food, the same thing with our relationship, that organic natural basis is lost. And then we've forgotten that there is a deeper spirit awareness and unity uh, pervading life and connecting us together. And that we can also uh, move into. I always tell they always ask me about children. Take your children out into nature, first of all. Let them experience the prana. Let their energies go. The mind needs space in order to uh, heal. So we need to learn to cultivate these principles of balance. For example, energy is created by space, not by reaction. Reaction, you lose your energy. You create space and silence. Your energy can gather and be uh, transformed. So there are many laws of life, laws of nature, and then understanding the, the qualities of things, the natural, whole food, fruit, vegetables, we all know their sattvic and uh, pranic qualities. And these principles then we can take on. And now we're caught in the drug-based medicine. And the drug-based medicine is also depleting, dulling, creating more tamas. It has a certain place, but it should not be the first recommendation, particularly at a behavioral level. It should be the last uh, recommendation. So this principle of sattvic and natural and aware living needs to be reestablished. And once we do that, we find that life itself is a healing process. We don't necessarily have to take the drug. We can go out into nature. We can work in the garden. We can do some chanting, mantra, meditation, nice dialogue and uh, discussion. There are these inner secrets of yogic and uh, Vedic healing uh, that are there for us. And that, again, fortunately, we are having access to today now throughout the world. So are you saying that someone who is really addicted to the stimulation of their senses or really lost in a tamasic world, too old to change, retreated, depressed, are, are, are what you just said, is that the solution to take them? Because you talk about, in your book, going from tamasic behavior to rajasic to sattvic and always trying to go back in that direction. Are, are those or are there other strategies for people who are lost in the tamasic box how do we unlock that box and get them out on the road to... See, the mind is an addictive mechanism, essentially. And so we've set in motion certain addictive patterns. And once they've reached a certain density, they kind of crystallize, tamasic, they almost become solid. They're very difficult to change. But there are ways of change, the application of agni or heat or the principle of uh, tapas, getting the digestive fire going uh, properly again, so at least we're digesting the food uh, properly, then developing the acuity of the senses. There's always something you can do. There's always something someone can do. But if behavior is very addictive, then the person may need to be in a different environment or around people of a sattvic nature or in contact with the healer at a regular basis, uh, once a week, twice a week, or even more, just to reinforce that connection, even if nothing specific may be changed in terms of the 
uh, prescription. So we have to recognize the importance of that human element. But things can be changed. There are, of course, situations which will be going to be very, very difficult to change. But there is much that can uh, be done. And that spark of transformation can be passed on from one to another. So we need to do the best we can. And gradually, uh, once that fire is started, it reaches a certain threshold, then it will continue of its own. So for everybody listening, Dr. Frawley has a, uh, a questionnaire in his book. It's a Satva, uh, kind of emotional body type questionnaire where you can, where he, he so Satva Rajas and Thomas questionnaire where you find out exactly in what areas of your life you're Satvic and what areas of your life you're Rajasic and what areas of your life you're Tamasic. And, and would it be good for people to use that and go, okay, if I'm Tamasic you know, around money or I'm Tamasic around this aspect of health, would that be, um, where they could start. You can, okay, now I've identified the problem. I am tamasic in this area. Maybe we deal with the rajasic tendencies later, but start with the tamasic tendencies. Would that be a good place for folks to start? Absolutely, but they should start wherever they can, whatever behavioral changes that they can make. And understanding you're not helping yourself by remaining in a tamasic or addictive phase. And to move out of tamas, of course, you do need action or... Uh, Rajas, but we need creative action uh, in life. We need to do things more independently. We can't just go out and see a movie or go over uh, to a restaurant somewhere. We need to go out and create our own experience. Uh, We need to cook our own food. We need to reclaim our own life experience. Thomas means you're not living your own life. Somebody else's. Your program, some pattern is going on. Uh, some conditioning from the society. Learn to live your own life again. Be aware of your breath. Be aware of your senses. Uh, Have us understand uh, who you are. Relate to people directly and uh, learn to understand that they're behind this veil of darkness, depression, and stress. There is tremendous beauty, wonder, light, and joy in life that you can connect to if you simply take a little effort. Uh, If you could take one hour a day for a year, definitely major changes can occur. But you have to be willing to make that effort, not as a kind of personal assertion, but a faith in life and a willingness to work with the factors of your life in a positive way. You can change your inclination. You can start drinking herbs. You can take your food differently. Uh, you can do yoga as an exercise. Uh, you can take a retreat out in nature. You can dip the panchakarma therapy. Do something new and different that awakens your own healing power and connects you with this deeper wisdom of life. Not that difficult, but it has <laughs> done consistently. And find a mentor, a guide, a counselor to connect with on a regular basis to reinforce that. Hmm. Thus, the idea of uh, having a Vedic counselor or someone who can actually guide you and hold your hand through this transformational process is really important. I want to <coughs> also say that I want to remind the listeners that when you listen to Dr. Frawley, um, he says some amazing things like 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 sort of like off the cuff 
And I, I just want to teach it so I had to listen to you, which is to really kind of listen to every single word because some of the stuff you say is so profound. Some of the stuff is sort of like, you know, we've heard and it's good and it's wonderful, but some of the stuff you're saying is so profound and I want to just keep stopping you and go into that. But I, I just want to remind people, how, you, if you don't know Dr. Crawley like I do and a lot of my listeners don't know you, and I'm, I'm so happy to introduce him, you have to listen really carefully and you have to hear every word because he's so brilliant. And, and I'm going to try to try to dive in a little deeper in these, some of these areas. Like you mentioned nature a lot lately in the last five minutes. Um, and uh, there's a study that just, I just wrote an article about a study that showed that people who live around more greenery live significantly longer. It extends life. We know that nature is an OGIS builder. Yes. So, and I would love for you to tell us all about OJUS because I think there's something to do with that. If you don't have any OJUS, how can you make this transformational change in your life, right? So, yes. I'd love to hear you talk about that. Okay. Well, OJUS is the essence of our positive vitality. We have a certain amount of congenital OJUS that we are born with. We also have a certain amount of OJUS that we can derive from the food. We also have a certain samskaric patterns that connect us to certain patterns of ojas. And ojas is also pervading nature as this inner sense of strength. Uh, and it's intimately connected to the pranic force, the life force, and also to the tejas force, or to this, you might say, deeper inner fire uh, energy. Now, we connect OGIS with both physical and psychological immunity and inner strength, but also patience, attention, self-consciousness, and willpower, uh, and the ability to be in control of your life in a positive sense, in the sense that you don't just do what other people want you to do, you don't just follow the trend of the desire, you have your own inner being, stability, and purpose. Ojas is also a power of stillness, silence, balance, and collectiveness where we integrate and hold together all the different aspects of our being. And Ojas is based upon a certain faith or openness to transcendence. We are not just who we are limited to at this particular moment in time. We are swimming in an ocean of universal forces, and mainly we're pushing them away. But we can also let them come in. So in our connection, this greater unity with life, like the unity of nature, we gain a certain uh, ojas. For example, if you're on a high mountain cultivating, contemplating the distant horizon, there's a certain ojas that will enter into uh, the mind. Uh, similarly, uh, as we make, as, as we face our obstacles in life and grow, we gain more strength and more ojas. We shouldn't run away from obstacles. We should recognize that life is an opportunity to grow and transform. And if the divine loves us, then we may get more greater difficulties because we it gives us an opportunity to grow. It's like a heavier weight that you need to lift that will give you uh, greater 
strength. So we need to understand how we can hold and consolidate ojas, where we can get ojas from, and how we lose ojas. And we lose ojas a lot through doubt, through negativity, through excess activity, through overstimulation, and this inability or unwillingness to cultivate that silence, stability, patience, and even more important than physical immunity is the psychological immunity, meaning that we don't get taken in by every little stress, worry, anxiety, and change, that we recognize that we have an eternal being and purpose in life. Uh, there is a value and power to our existence. And if we are true to our nature, then life will unfold in a way that will bring maximum growth and transformation for us. So, so if, if is OJAS the thing, if we could create and build more of it, would that be the, the platform from which we can make this transformational change? Yeah, well, help in a very positive way, because first of all, you need to develop the OJAS from the food and the herbs if you're depleted. Okay. Right. That was now, my next question, which is how do we how do we pump it up? Like, what are some of the like the top five strategies to to bring that ojus back? I think our culture is sort of ojus depleted. You'd say, right? Overstimulated, overworked, overexhausted. So, how do we how do people bring that back into their to build that reserve? Well, first of all, proper deep sleep, and that requires a certain relaxation and letting go of the mind. Right. In deep sleep, the ojus is renewed. Now, then, of course, is the proper nutrition, and you're an expert on that, and you have taught that in various ways. I don't need to say so much about that, but in Ayurveda, we have ojus-increasing herbs and ojus-increasing food, and these are very necessary things to have in our diet so we don't then run after the, the heavier proteins, carbohydrates, fats, oils, and uh, meat. We also have the role of the oil massage for building in the ojas as well. And then once you begin to develop that ojas as a material factor, also the beverages, then you can pump it up through pranayama. If you don't have that ojas, sometimes the pranayama is going to uh, disturb you. You can build that up. And then to cultivate a power of attention, see, that is like the ojas or the steadiness of the mind. So we start at the physical level because that's where we depleted, and then we work to the uh, subtler levels. And Ayurveda has all these uh, Chavanprash, Ashwagandha, Shatavari, and then it has all the special Thailams and uh, Gritams, etc. There's a lot of very special and complex formulas. We won't have the time to talk about them here, but as an Ayurvedic doctor, there's certain recommendations you can make of highly potentized and ojas increasing energy. But the Agni has to be good for the ojas to develop, so that has to be uh, strengthened uh, uh, with that. And an ojas increasing attitude which is to conserve in a positive way, not to deplete ourselves, not to unnecessarily throw ourselves away. Don't give your attention away for nothing. If there's something worthwhile seeing and learning, uh, please do. Uh, but your power of attention is the greatest 
most important valuable thing that you have. So please use it in a positive way and develop patience in life. We live in instantaneous culture, but things don't grow instantaneously. You have to learn to cultivate the garden, which means to cultivate the soil and to make sure you have the ground of your being prepared and the ground of your lifestyle. And then so many things can grow out of that. So that's why we emphasize uh, the basics of life, patterns of waking and sleep, patterns of exercise, food and beverages. We take so many negative beverages. There are many beverages, Tulsi. There are many things that you can take to increase your awareness. There's been certain types of tea. There are many ways of increasing what we call the essence of ojas, which we call soma. And, of course, I have a whole book on soma, and that's another matter. But the soma is the positive secretion of the tarpa kapha in the brain, which is the result of having ojas. What happens is we're seeking outer stimulation because that inner tarpa kapha or that inner bliss power, contentment power, uh, chemical power within our brains is not functioning there. And it's not functioning because it doesn't have the food the sensory impressions, or the positive relationships to support it. So we need to learn how to do that. And through yoga and Ayurveda, through the proper diet, herbs, pranayama, mantra, meditation, we can control our own brain chemistry and we can lift ourselves from the darkness of depression to a deeper flow of ananda. It takes time, like the growing of a tree. Uh, but it is something that we can definitely do. But we need the knowledge and the guidance and the tools and the resources to do for that. And that is what the Vedic knowledge and the Vedic teachers and any good healer can help you with. Okay, so I'm very rajasic right now because I am so stimulated by the things you're saying and I have so much to talk about. And so, so there's some... You're probably very much aware of the research they found about nine months ago at the University of Virginia. They found the brain lymphs, the glymphatics that drain the brain, about three pounds of toxic plaque from your brain every single year. In Ayurveda, they talked about uh, the sagittal sinus lymphs in the brain thousands of years ago when they found these lymphs that they didn't even know existed until nine months ago. They were exactly where Ayurveda predicted they would be, and they were predicted to actually drain aspects of the brain. For and and that area of the brain is an area where we protect emotionally, and there's a connection there between they they now made the connection between not having good brain lymphatic drainage. You mentioned sleep for ojas, and most people can't sleep. If you can't sleep, your brain can't drain. If your brain can't drain, the brain gets filled up with this toxic plaque, which doesn't let it, the tarpaka kapha, which is an aspect of the brain, produce the ojas or the soma to provide the brain chemistry with that youthful. Uh, or, 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 or youthful uh, endorphin-based bliss that allows us to make transformational change. So this is like such a. This is what I write about a lot as ancient wisdom and modern science. But, but I am so curious to know about your take on this new discovery of the brain limbs and yes. more detail about how these brain limbs actually work from a from a Ayurvedic psychology perspective. Okay, there's several things here. First of all. The brain heals itself and cleanses itself in the state of deep sleep. Uh, my current study, I'm doing a whole book on the states of waking, dream, and deep sleep, particularly the state of uh, deep sleep, because it's very, very essential. And But in order to reach the state of deep sleep, 
you have to prepare properly. And what we do is we overstimulate the mind and the nervous system, particularly in the evening. So it's very important to shut the technology down at least two hours before you go to sleep. Have some natural beverages that help you with the sleep, some oil massage, some meditation, some relaxing pranayama and mantra, because that is the key to your renewal. Not the workout you do during the day. The workout you do during the day is very important. Then in the Vedic system, uh, the second part is we have an understanding of the channels or the nadis. And, of course, the most important is the balance between the solar and the lunar or the right and the left uh, nadi forces, which actually become reversed then inside the brain. And there are other nadis connected to the different orifices of the senses and the chakras. And make sure that the flow through the nadis is going on. If there's a positive flow through the nadis, it will then accrue through the srota systems or the physiological systems, the lymphatics, and uh, so forth. So the nadis are pranic flows. So here is where pranayama is a very important factor for cleansing uh, the brain and even offering up. Uh, in fact, sometimes we have the uh, uh, students, patients, visualize the fire of prana in the heart. On inhalation, you can offer all the toxic emotions into that fire for transformation. On exhalation, you can let all the positive uh, transformed energies come forth. Uh, through the prana, and there's a whole science of prana through the five pranas, we can then learn how to keep those pranic flows. And when those pranic flows are moving, then the brain uh, will drain. There's also these great herbs like the uh, calamus and the uh, pipali and the haritaki and certain uh, semi-stimulants uh, to the brain that help uh, quite a bit. There are certain asanas, even headstands, shoulder stand, uh, that can be done. There are many things we can do to protect the brain, to care for the brain, and to make sure that we have proper rest and relaxation. If you're not relaxed, you're holding toxins somewhere. That stress is a toxin. So that relaxation and letting go, not only of the body, but also at the level of the uh, emotions. And every night before you go to sleep, let the world go. It's going to be there again in the morning when you get up. You don't have to worry. It's going to disappear overnight. But give yourself uh, the ability to have that rest. And also we need to recognize that sleep is a doorway to the inner worlds also, and even to uh, the higher consciousness so that uh, we need to give ourselves that proper understanding. And then it's very also important how we get up in the morning, having positive impressions, setting in motion positive thoughts and actions uh, immediately, even certain times of renewal like the Brahma Mahorta or the time immediately before the dawn. If we get up in stress and run out and deal with our material things, or at least catch up with our email and everything, and then a few hours later decide to relax and get going and do something positive. It's too late, as I tell people at that point, the train has already left the station. You're already gone a certain path. So managing our time, our biological rhythms, our lifestyle, and our pranic flows 
which are all connected, are very important, and yoga and Ayurveda has many tools for helping us to do this. Okay, but we're, we're running low on time, and, and I have two more questions, um, many more actually. I want you to expound on the idea that rasa, which is uh, a word that is used uh, in Ayurveda for things like taste, for the emotions, um, and it also is for lymphatic flow. And there's a lot of research that I'm talking, that I'm writing about, about lymph these days and the brain lymph and all these benefits of the lymph are just beginning to under, uh, discover and how Ayurveda knew so much about the lymph and the rasa. And rasayana is the study of longevity. So, so can you connect for me the dots between taste, the, mm. the, the emotions, mm. and the lymph, all rasa, and how right. that relates to transformational change from an Ayurvedic psychology point of view. Right. Well, first of all, rasa is, of course, the essence or uh, the uh, juice. And the lymphatics is the, is the essence of the food, the essence of the beverages even more so. And it's the nutritive pool that feeds all the tissues and all the datus and all the organs. It's very kapha in nature. It's very much like the mother uh, that takes care of you. Now, taste with the rasa is a way in which we get a sense of the subtle essence of something as apart from its particular uh, gross uh, form. And these rasas then also have certain effects, stimulative, addictive, or even the six rasas uh, in Ayurveda, the six tastes, and as you know, all the different things that they do to us and how they affect us. But the rasas are also affecting us uh, emotionally and also stimulating the prana in various ways. That's why things like spices or aromatherapy have such an effect because of the uh, rasa and vow. And essentially what we're doing all of life is the formation of creating deeper and deeper rasas. Each datu, each tissue is the deeper level of a, of a rasa or an essence coming out of it. Even the mind is the rasa or the essence of the uh, body. And at the deeper level, we have a certain rasa or essence of our experience, which is generally either happiness or unhappiness or peace or disturbance. This is the ultimate rasa. So rasa is like an alchemical art of cultivating uh, greater refinement and uh, greater sensitivity and deeper discrimination. When you are more aware of the subtle taste of your food, not just the kind of the gross things, but also the subtle natural flavors, then that food will have a more transformative effect upon you. A lot of the rasas we are taking is through our beverages, beer, Coca-Cola, see the type of rasas that we are creating. Herbal uh, beverages are a direct food for the brain. Taking a variety of herbal beverages is actually going to teach the brain uh, a variety of ways of looking at things and help it understand life in various uh, different ways, although there are different beverages that are better for uh, other people uh, or different types of people. And then learning to imbibe the essence. Let's take art. When the artist is uh, painting a bowl of fruit on a table, he's not looking at a bowl of fruit on the table. He's seeing the essence of color and proportion, design. 
so too we can aesthetically appreciate our lives and nature. There's a certain beauty of color, shape, form, and even at a deeper level, a certain beauty of emotion. And art, even tragedy, can have a tremendous uh, beauty or pathos or uh, rasa. And beyond this is the deepest rasa, which is being itself, which is the presence of the self-awareness behind everything which is the space of awareness, the space of being. So when we, when we move to that deeper level of rasa, then the self, the atma, the consciousness is the ultimate rasa. And they say we enter that through the mantra and particularly through om. Essence of the human being is speech. Essence of speech is mantra. Essence of mantra is om. Essence of om is that expansive universal consciousness within and without us, around us, uh, which is smaller than the smallest in the heart and greater than the greatest pervading the entire universe, which holds eternity at every moment and uh, infinity at every point uh, in space. Cultivate that deeper essence and what the Vedic knowledge does is gives us tools how to do that, starting with food, emotions, so many different things. There's the whole science and art of rasa, alchemy, you can also call it, ananda, learning to extract the deeper meaning of peace and beauty and harmony from our experience, rather than just being caught in the outer shell of the pain and the stress and the suffering. It's such a beautiful science that, that, you know, the food that we eat is, you know, really the, the, the beginning of the experience of rasa, and it's taken through this journey through the body till it becomes ojas and ultimately consciousness, and then, it, and then it all comes back to the self. I have one other question about that. You mentioned... Um, and this is a question a lot of people have. It's about meat. In the Rig Veda, there's over a hundred and some odd references for eating meat. And in many of the Ayurvedic major texts, there's references for eating meat. Um, we know that it talks about sattvic meats and non-sattvic meats and things like that. Veda, I'm curious to know, is Veda a, a non-vegetarian um, you know, system? And is Hinduism the vegetarian system? We're looking at religion versus universal truth here. This is a complex question. But first of all, as someone who studied the Vedas in the original Sanskrit for more than 40 years, there's almost no reference to meat eating in the Vedic Samhita of the Rig Veda. Really? There, yes, there's none. Uh, there's the use of ghee. There's the use of honey. There's the use of... But what we have, we have certain rituals in which meat is part of the rituals. Right. And there are also rituals without the eating of meat. You have to understand that the knowledge is for everybody. And the rule is for people who, that meat eating is fine at a certain level, uh, certain levels of society, kshatriya. But for spiritual practices, it's generally recommended to uh, reduce it. Now in Ayurveda, if you read the chapter on Rasayana, and particularly the Achara Rasayana, Along with the whole, the whole Rasayana is based upon Ahimsa, the Rishi diet, and 
what is essentially a vegetarian diet. Now, uh, meat can be part of a healthy diet. I'm not saying that that is uh, the case, uh, not the case. But at the same time, it's not necessary, and we do not need so much of it. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, today, we I think to a great extent that we can uh, move beyond it. But Ayurveda is for everybody. So if people want to eat meat, Ayurveda will explain the qualities of uh, meat. There are certain health conditions where meat can be very helpful, if almost uh, essential, particularly for very depleted right. uh, dosha. Right. We should never yeah. look at life with dogma, saying that absolute yes, absolute no. We have to understand the relevance and the importance of all things and their uh, proper usage. So the monks generally had to have follow a vegetarian uh, diet unless vegetarian food uh, was not available. And for certain sadhanas, a vegetarian diet was recommended. But you were never excommunicated by eating of meat. And there are also different traditions. There were certain shakta traditions where meat-eating was part of the tradition. When that was the case, it was done as a sacred offering, not just simply as your local steakhouse enjoyment and parties. It depended on certain societies. For example, in India today, people in the Himalayas, in the east of the country, uh, still take goats and animals and all of that, but it's also part of their culture and part of the food types that uh, grow mm-hmm. best uh, for them. I always tell people, never, uh, petty moralism will always defeat you, so we're not encouraging that, uh, but we do want to promote vegetarianism, or at least a reduction of meat consumption. Meat is medicine under certain circumstances can be okay, or meat is necessity relative to a certain culture uh, that uh, you may have, or a certain, the Tibetans, for example, living at a certain altitude and all of that. So I'm not saying be moralistic about it, but the overall emphasis on ahimsa and the overall emphasis on reduction of harm and unnecessary use of resources uh, is uh, important. And that's where, you know, America pioneered the, the beef diet for the world because we had the Great Plains and the buffalo to wipe out and all that land. Today we're in an ecological age that we have to be aware and be considerate about. But Ayurveda has always said that sattvic living is necessary for true mental health and psychological well-being. And a vegetarian diet is an aid in the uh, sattvic living. At the same time, you don't want to be a fanatic vegetarian that becomes rajasic in their minds and judgmental of uh, other people. And we have to understand the different uh, food types and their uh, application. And we have to let people grow and uh, discover rather than fact. I don't believe in this list of this is right and that is wrong, this is good and that is bad. Uh, rather, we help people learn how to adapt and adjust and understand the energies of their lives in an experiential way. And then they will cultivate a rasa that will take them naturally in a sattvic direction rather than having a controlling mind trying to impose some value from the outside without understanding the essence from uh, within. Yes, it's, it's, you know, as we become better digesters, 
as we become less stressed by living Ayurvedic principles and lifestyle, the, the diet will change naturally. People will aspire to less meat and more sattvic lifestyle and a sattvic food. And that's exactly what I teach. And, and uh, unfortunately, we do see a lot of people who are so depleted, who are rigid vegetarians, who have, in a way, lost their way and, and have dogma on that side of the equation. And, of course, we have plenty of dogma on the other side of the equation as well, the meat-eating side. It's just like I love how, I just love how you put it. It's so beautiful. You know, we just have to erase the dogma. And, for example, you have to have the proper vegetarian diet. Right. Not eating raw foods in the winter. Right. That's not appropriate. Uh, you have to do it intelligently. Right. Uh, and even if you're going to eat meat, it has to be done intelligently. You have to get the good quality food. It can't be just the, the canned stuff, the quickly made stuff, the restaurant uh, food. But have a living relationship with your food, and your food will guide you. Wow. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, are there, we've, we've pretty much run out of time, a little over time. Are, is there anything else you would like to, to say um, that we didn't cover in reference to your book? I, I think the book is really, really great. That um, I hope people uh, look at it. I think Ayurvedic psychology, understanding how to transform your emotions, your unconscious behaviors are critical. David, is there anything, any last comments you'd like to mention about, um, about that? Well, it's a very vast book that covers a number of topics, including good counseling skills for Vedic people. It also includes the counseling and the psychological aspect of yoga. It also brings in the relevance of the Jyotish or the Vedic astrology, and even to a little bit of the uh, Vastu. So even though the Ayurvedic uh, psychology is, we might say, the most important part or the dominant part, it's weaving in counseling and the other Vedic disciplines together, because it's all about counseling and lifestyle, and each of these disciplines contributes something. Jyotish helps you understand the karma. Uh, Vastu helps you understand the architecture of your lives. Yoga psychology and Ayurvedic psychology are pretty much the same. The Klesha theory of yoga is extremely important for understanding uh, psychology and dealing with it. Yamas and Niyamas are principles of proper psychology and right living. And it's not just a question of longevity. Rasayana, media Rasayana is bringing back a greater quality and creativity into our lives. And as many of us are getting older, that is what we need to do, not just simply live longer, but also awaken that deeper uh, rasa and that uh, ability to connect to the greater universal awareness where we can feel that greater wholeness of life. Wonderful. Um, how can people find you? I know you, you, we mentioned in the beginning you do a lot of workshops, you have many online courses. How can people find out more about that? Well, the simple social media. We have a website, which is very simple, Veda, V-E-D-A, but net, vedanet.com. Uh, we have all kinds of things uh, on that. I have a Dr. David Frawley uh, web uh, Facebook that has things up. And uh, we have our other types of accounts. My wife, Yogini Shambhavi, also has uh, her own account. So I would say starting with the website, you can then also connect and have the itineraries, activities. We do also activities in Europe. We do take people to India and do things there if you want to experience 
India in a more authentic way. We have a retreat in Santa Fe in August this year. Santa Fe is a beautiful uh, place uh, uh, for that. And we have various things off and on through the year. So these are usual ways uh, to connect. And, of course, uh, we look forward to sharing with uh, the any all the who are receptive. And we also encourage everyone to study deeply, learn the teachings, but also teach, practice, become a healer. And part of the, the art and science of uh, Vedic councils, we want a profession. We want to create these uh, new Vedic professions, much like the old village pundit that they used to have or even have in some places uh, in India today. We need these professions of conscious, yogic, healers, counselors, guides, coaches, however you want to uh, uh, put that in a modern nomenclature, because that is the essence for healing ourselves, for healing our planet, for helping us move beyond this ecological crisis and moving beyond these uh, horrible social barriers uh, that we still have and moving. You know, the technology is good. It helps us communicate. But we have to turn, know how to turn the technology off. The drug-based medicine is great for very acute things. The surgery is wonderful for so many things. But we also have to let life be the healing force, and the drug should come last, not first, particularly for behavioral problems and for uh, children. Well, Dr. David Frawley... Vama uh, Deva, my very, very good friend, and I am super grateful for you, for your knowledge, your wisdom. Thank you for taking the time and sharing your wisdom with us. I deeply, deeply thank you. Uh, I hope to see you soon and hope to have you back. Uh, very much appreciate your knowledge and taking the time to come. Thank you very much. Well, it's great to be with you, and you evoke that in the people around you, not only me, uh, you also evoke that healing energy and, and wisdom in your patients and through others uh, with your work. So this has been a dialogue and a joint experience, and I've learned a lot from you also. Namaste. Namaste. Hi, did you like this video? Do you like our content here at Life Spa? You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash John right here and get this valuable content.